0: Hey guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be a great uh, Arizona Unit 9 elk hunting recap with uh, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. And I was able to catch up with Chris as he was driving back from Unit 9 back home. And uh, we have a real good conversation. Towards the end of the conversation, we end up uh, his phone ends up breaking up, going out of service. But uh, we get some real good discussion here. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Uh, don't forget rowhuntingresources.com. Uh, I get a lot of great feedback uh, from listeners, how much they enjoy that. Chris offers a 20% discount uh, for uh, you guys that sign up, the J. Scott Outdoors uh, podcast listeners that sign up. Uh, I believe uh, his promo code is Um You get 20% off. Also guys, uh, gohunt.com insider. Uh, is doing their 30 day free trial for the J Scott Outdoors listeners. And all you have to do is go to gohunt.com forward slash J. Scott and follow the prompts, and you get a full access for 30 days to the Go Hunt Insider. Gotten tons of feedback from uh, listeners how much they enjoy a Go Hunt Insider. So go check that out. And I want to thank uh, my additional sponsors, uh, the Outdoorsman's. Uh, who's having a huge sale with Swarovski Optic right now, um, and uh, phone scope and real game calls. Uh, Guys, let's get right to this episode uh, with Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. I thank you guys so much for your support of this podcast. Uh, You can go to my website, jscottoutdoors.com. That has link outs to the podcast, to all my social media. You can send me an email through the website as well, uh, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Thanks for all your support. Thanks for all the uh, hashtags on Instagram, hashtagging Outdoors and Outdoors podcast. And thanks for all the pictures and testimonials uh, from all the value you guys have gotten with the podcast. Um, let's just get right to this episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources, and Chris is actually in the truck driving back to Kansas. He's been in Arizona, was in Colorado chasing bulls and then spent the last couple weeks in Arizona chasing elk in unit nine. Um, anxious to hear how the season went for you. Chris, how you doing?
1: Doing all right, my friend. How are you?
0: Oh, doing pretty good. I'm uh, dying to know how uh, the rut was in Arizona, and uh, what you experienced, uh, what, what were your overall thoughts of uh, how this year went as far as the rut having been there for several seasons?
1: Well, um, you know, last year we all thought it was tough. Uh, there was some, you know, just the way the weather was and everything else, but to be honest with you, I, I think this year was even tougher than what we saw last year. I mean, it was, well, just for instance, uh, we, I was with one of our buddies up there last night, uh, September 29th at 9 p.m., up in the middle of some of the best area in the unit, and we did not hear a cricket. I mean, it just, it was dead quiet. I mean, it was just a, I've been, I was up there for three weeks, and it's just been a grind to try to find bulls that were not only vocal, that, that uh, ended up wanting to play. I mean, it was it was a brutal, brutally tough season. I mean, you'd go to one spot and you could not even find, I mean, you'd be lucky to find a good fresh track and then literally drive down the road and you'd, you'd jump into the middle of a couple of just a flurry of bugling and then that flurry would die down and then just crickets after that. So it was uh, it was definitely a tough and interesting season. Uh, mm-hmm. Did not get... Near the video footage that I was hoping to get, but uh, heck, I was still in the woods. I was still in Unit Nine, so I, I can't complain. I was happy. <laughs> what do you?
0: What factors um, do you think played the biggest role, or played a role in uh, the the rut just being lackluster?
1: My and again, Jay, this is my opinion, and I know that there might be some people that don't want to hear this, but I'm just going to express my opinion. First and foremost, I think. Uh, it's something that we, that none of us have control over, I think, the weather. Um, now, you guys have better information than I do, but from what, everything that I was told and what I saw on the ground as far as grass condition, it seems like there was a lack of rain early in mid-summer, and then, you know, the unit got some rain late. Well, the areas that got rain late at least some of the grandma or the blue grandma grasses. It, it, for those not familiar, you got two different types of grass. You got cool season grasses that grow when the weather's cool in the spring and it grows in the spring and the fall as long as there's moisture. Then you have the warm season grasses like blue grandma grass that grow in the heat of the summer, but they do need some moisture. Well, those grasses are what a lot of the elk up there, I mean, it's got good protein and that just really packs on the antlers and it, and it provides a lot of good uh, forage for cows that are lactating and, and bringing up calves. So it seems like that grass did not do well in a lot of the areas uh, across the units early on. And it, it only bumped up later in the summer. And then number two, then the other flip side of that too was this year there was a pile of cattle all through the unit. I mean, from border to border, corner to corner, it means just there was cattle everywhere. And so even the good spots that had grass, the cattle were in there just taking it out. So I think part, this is again, my opinion, Now I talk about this on the website with the Rethinking the Rut series, there's only one real factor that helps delay estrus cycling, and that is whether or not the cows have adequate body fat, whether they have adequate body condition to allow them to come into estrus. And I think... In some cases, uh, for a lot of those cows, I think maybe they had poor body condition coming into, and maybe they weren't skin and bones, but they just did not have the level of body fat that they needed coming into September to allow them to cycle on either early or a normal cycle. It seems like maybe a few of those cows were just starting to come in late because for what I saw The bulk of the time when I got on a bull that was locked down with a cow, and I say that very specifically and we'll touch on that, a cow, okay? That cow did not have a calf. Or if that cow had a calf, it was a very large, older calf, okay? So the the calf looked like it was healthy and probably weed. all right? But any of the other groups of cows I got into that had a bull, where the cows were in there, they were smaller calves, that there was just nothing going on. The, the bull was just kind of milling around with the cows and it just really wasn't fired on. So I think maybe part of what we saw was due to we just had some poor forage condition uh, maybe early in midsummer, and, and it just kind of suppressed some of the cow body fish. I don't know. But the other factor, and this is something that you and I talked about, I know you know you guys have you and Steve Chappell, and I, I and Steve Chappell have talked about it and some others. The unit nine is changing, and Arizona seems to be treating unit nine more for an opportunity hunt than for trophy management because they've got a lot of late season hunts and additional. There's just all sorts of other seasons going on in, uh, you know, in that unit. I, I think you, we're just seeing a whole scale change in the, in the age structure and the makeup of that um, unit to where literally it was crazy this year. I did not see bulls, and I don't care if we're talking about a 300-inch bull or we're talking about a 340 bull. I mean, finding a 350-plus bull was, was, was hard. I mean, hard. This year. But even the younger age class bulls that were holding cows and, and that were working cows, seriously, you had 320 bulls and 330 bulls that were, that were the primary herd bull in a lot of these situations. But I did not see any bull defending, courting, or, or herding. I, I did not see any bull out there really holding a harem. But instead, I saw individual bulls locked down with one cow or two cows. And literally, there might be eight or ten other cows around him, but he just absolutely did not care whether another bull came in and took those other cows, whether those cows wandered away from him, whether he wandered away from those cows. He just didn't care about all the other cows. They literally were acting like white tails, and they were locked down with a single cow that was probably coming close to coming in estrus they would they would lock down that with that one cow they would follow her around and then as soon as it was done they just leave they would just go and they would either find the rest of those cows and just kind of hang out with them or they would just wander off and go look for another cow it, it really seemed like they were almost acting more like whitetails this year than what you you know your typical quote-unquote you know herd bull that's got a you know whether it's a half a dozen cows, eight cows, what he's got, 15 cows, or whatever. I just did not see herd bulls defending or trying to maintain a harem. When I got it, you know, you guys are the ones that kind of coined the term that meatball, you know, where you get into a whole bunch of bulls bugling, a whole bunch of cows, just a whole bunch of activity. Seriously, every time I got into one of those meatball situations, it literally was just one bull locked down with one cow there might be a whole bunch of other cows around but the bulls were ignoring the other cows they were just all trying to get that one cow that was coming into estrus. so it was, it was a real crazy scenario i mean you get this this real flash in the pan you, you get a situation where they're juggling like crazy and then all of a sudden they would split up they take their cows and boop go, and then it'd be just gone i mean crickets for the rest of the day so it was a it was definitely an interesting interesting season it just, unfortunately, it just seems like anymore that, you know, unit nine, we were just talking about this. For those guys that have been putting in for, you know, 20 years wanting to put in for unit nine, I think people are going to be disappointed. I think unit nine anymore is just kind of a mid-tier unit, and it's just the way it's going to be.
0: I'm curious your thoughts on hunting pressure. I mean, you've been up there for several years. Um, was the hunting pressure more or less or the same uh what can you say about the the people and and the camps and people messing with bulls and uh, was there a lot of pressure and well, let me ask you one question first. what What do you feel about the pressure uh, with the people? Did that have, play a part in it in your mind?
1: i I think it might have, however, you know, last year you and I saw probably, I mean, pretty egregious what I'd call combat bow hunting. You know, I mean, last year we had guys blocking water holes, you know, pretending that they were hunting a water hole and, you know, really they were just sitting there watching it, blocking it for their you know other clients or other buddies or whatever. I ran into that just very briefly right at the beginning of the season. Um, But I did not see a lot of that. Um, I I did not see as much of the quote-unquote combat bow hunting like we did last year. However... It was super, super dry when the season started. And there were a handful of really good bulls taken. I think three, I, I know of three bulls that were over 370 that were taken early in the season. Now, it, and there may be four. There's, there's one that's kind of confusing. There's controversy, you know, whether it was, a – anyway, it doesn't matter. Three or four good bulls that were taken. Everything that was being taken in that early, that first half of the season, well, mostly but actually that first 10 days of the season was someone sitting on water. It, it literally this year, the water was the limiting factor. And there were some water holes that had water early, but again, there were so many cattle in areas where all of a sudden you get 20, 30 cattle cows show up and they'll suck a tank dry. I mean, it was, it was warm and dry. So some of the tanks did not have water, and they were losing water. So a lot of the outfitters, a lot of the hunters that would scout, they had a water hole that they, they had pinned down that they wanted to hunt. And then all of a sudden, five days into season, it's dry. Now the elk are moved. Well, now it's, it's a mad scramble. Trying to find a good water source. And I saw some of the more prominent uh, outfitters in the, in the unit literally were just, I mean, they had blinds on all these prime water holes. And they all they did in the morning, they would grab their clients, shuttle them to a water hole. And I mean, they just camped on a water hole and just rotated their guys through it into where basically it, it was, you know, somebody would, would camp on a water hole and, and never leave. And so you just, there it is. And so, you know, there's one, uh, one area up kind of North central part of the unit, there was a trick tank. And, and for those that are not familiar down here, when you say trick tank, um, Arizona does a phenomenal job. I, 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 this is one thing that I will always commend Arizona and especially the Arizona Elk Society. They, they do a great job of providing water resources for elk and for wildlife. So some of the water sources are earthen dams, basically earth ponds. Okay. So they're, they're, they're filled with water and you got mud and everything else with the elk love. But when those dry up, there are what's called trick tanks or trickle tanks or guzzlers or wildlife waters, whatever you want to call it. But basically there's a uh, steel or concrete apron, big area that catches water, channels it into a storage unit. And then that storage tank will, will trickle out a little bit of water into a drinker. And that usually will hold water for a very long time. And that's what end up, you know, uh, animals will end up relying on for their water source. Well, there was a trick tank, one of these, uh, north-central part of the unit. Uh, it, literally, I mean, you had they, there was two different ground blinds on this trick tank. Set, literally, almost set 180 degrees apart. From, I mean, literally, right across from one another. They, a couple guys got in an argument saying, "You just don't shoot me. They're, so, two guys are hunting that. And then, literally, there are guys walking through with bows. Just, I mean, literally, just, it was crazy. It was chaos in a couple of these places because there was only a handful of places that had water where the elk were going to come in. Well, you and I know that 90% of the animals are going to come in in the middle of the night, but some people were successful sitting in water and, and even in those high-pressure you know, situations. So those were the, the areas where we had the most conflict because, unfortunately, up until that point, that there was almost no talking. There was almost no bugling whatsoever. Uh, it was very difficult to locate animals. It wasn't until we finally kind of started to get towards the end of the bow season, we got some rain, and, man, we got a rainstorm, and it just kicked everything in gear for all day. That day was rainy and cool and wet, and the elk were active all day, and so we finally had people that, you know, there, there was bulls talking, bulls working, so people kind of spread out, dissipated, and, and it just, it was a little bit better. But I think the pressure, again, you know, you've got big outfitters, you've got, friends that drew their tag I mean again you got somebody that drew their tag it took 20 years to draw it they've got five guys that you know all their buddies want to come help them so yeah there's there was a lot of pressure but it seemed like it was a little bit friendlier if you will than maybe what we saw last year um but yeah I mean it definitely it definitely keeps animals locked down it keeps them you know moving at night uh and those animals know where the sanctuary areas are and they just bail. They just bailed.
0: So, Speaking of sanctuary areas, um, let's actually take a quick break here, and then I've got a question for you. Guys, the title sponsor of my podcast is GoHunt.com Insider, and they're doing a 30-day free trial exclusive for the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and click on the blue free trial button and go through the steps. It only takes a couple of minutes. You will be required to provide a credit card, but you will not be charged until after the free 30 days. You can cancel at any time within the first 30 days to prevent being charged. If you have any questions at all, you can email freetrial at gohunt.com and someone from the GoHunt team will promptly respond. This is your opportunity to see what all the buzz is about and the filtering 2.0 system and the application strategies for the Western Hunter. Real Game Calls featuring the Elk Reel. Real Game Calls makes innovative, realistic, and easy to master calls using their proprietary. Revolutionary design. They are located and manufactured in Gypsum, Colorado. Their calls were designed and battle-tested on some of the hardest-hunted terrain on Earth. Check out elkreel.com. Use the promo code J Scott and receive a 20% discount on all purchases. Go to www.elkreel.com. Okay, speaking of sanctuaries, uh, with the Grand Canyon National Park right there, what did you notice anything different this year as far as elk moving on and off the park? Uh, was it much of the same, or uh, was it different in some ways?
1: Uh, I think it was much of the same. I mean, as soon as the pressure hit, I mean, it was just mass exodus. I mean, just flat-out mass exodus. You, you go drive through the park, and I mean, just... I mean, just The number of elk that are in the park is just crazy, just absolutely crazy. The only thing that I think helped this year was, that I think, again, because it was dry, the park ran out of water, and so some of those elk had just, by default, had to physically leave the park to come out, get some water on some of those water sources that were on the edge, but, I mean, it literally was... You'd hear bugling, you go chase after it, you'd, bump, you'd run right into the park boundary, and literally 150 yards over the park, park fence, they're going crazy. And then they're bedded down there, and then they get up in the evening, and then just feed and work their way deeper into the park. So I think, I mean, I think those cows, You know, people talk about call-shy bulls, and granted, yes, I'll agree, if you've got a 9-, 10-year-old bull or whatever, okay, he's been around the block, he knows the deal. But when you're dealing with two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half-year-old bulls, really how call-shy and educated can they be? They follow the cues off the cows, and I think the cows know it. As soon as the – and you know, Jay, I mean, Unit 9 has a lot of roads, uh, which is good because it provides a lot of access, and having a lot of that vehicle traffic and that access around it, I mean, heck, There were several times where we were chasing really, really good mature bulls that literally were bedded 100 yards from the road. They were bedded on a ridge. I could literally chuck a rock onto the main road. I mean, they would bed in these places where they could keep track of what the the vehicle traffic and the the human traffic was. So the elk have gotten used to these roads. However, the problem is, is, you know, in June, in July, they might hear one, maybe two vehicles a day. And then all of a sudden August hits, and now they're hitting five to ten vehicles a day, and then all of a sudden bow hunting hits, and a uh, bow season hits, and oh, my gosh, it's just a nonstop barrage of vehicles. Those cows know. I mean, you've got 10-, 12-, 15-year-old cows in there that are like, Oh, it's time, you know, their alarm clock goes off, and they're like, well, it's time, we've we got to leave, and they just go right to the park, and they bail into it. But same thing, I mean, you've got the park, you've got the, the Native American, you've got the reservations there that are nearby, um, yeah, so I, there, there's places where those bulls and those cows know that they can just get up and leave and just go. And, and that's absolutely what happened again this year.
0: Do you think that it'll be one of those years where the first two weeks of October, um, when, when the pressure leaves and they actually get a chance to be unpressured? I mean, do you think that they're going to really kick it in gear over the next couple weeks? I mean, do you think cows are going to miss entirely this year? Uh, or, or they're just going to be late and maybe catch on the second cycle, which, you know, should create a bunch of bugling here over the next couple of weeks?
1: I, I think that will happen. Um, you know, we've got typically over these past several years, I have actually several days after the season closes, whether it's a rifle season or an archery season, and, and you absolutely can see that. I mean, just like any unit, you know, a lot of the, you know, some of the hunters will fill early. Most of the hunters will fill by mid part of the season and then, you know, 90 to 95% of the, the hunters will be done, you know, a couple before the last day of the season. You know, we saw that with archery season and the same thing with the rifle, you know, the rifle season, most, it, it was a ghost town these last couple days. And so the pressure really let off. Well, heck I went to pull, went to pull one of my game cameras yesterday and in the middle of the day, Several hundred yards uh, into public land, and here is a you know two big bulls, a giant, giant five by five, or he was a crap six, but I mean just essentially a giant five by five. Another decent bull, a third decent bull, a bunch of cows. That, I mean they were they were well onto the public ground, and they were in their bugling and chasing each other around. But again, we had that one big bull was locked down with that one cow. So I think you're going to see the same thing we see every year. Those cows, everything's going to peel out of the park. Everything's going to come out of the reservations, and and they're just going to filter out across that unit again. Uh, We just got, I mean, when I say we got pounded by rain the other night, I mean, it was, that storm was absolutely incredible. We had flooding. We had flash flooding through camp. I mean, other camps got, I mean, literally stuff was floating. I mean, it was just insane amount of moisture. So every stock tank or every uh, wildlife tank is now full. Every mud puddle is full. There is water everywhere. It seems like they've moved cattle off of some of the places, so there's a little bit less forage pressure. So I think you're going to see a lot of those animals come out. And, yes, I, I absolutely believe that, you know, as those cows get that, you know, 8 to 9% body fat, they're they're going to go ahead and cycle, so some of them will be late. I The question, you know, and I think the deeper part of that question that you just asked is whether or not we will see just this absolute flurry of just Just screaming, bulls going crazy, going nuts, running around, just, and, you know, just a a late rut, but we have, you know, that, that, what, what we all dream of, just bulls going crazy in some of these units. I just don't know if we're going to see that. I'm, I'm going to try to stay in touch with a couple of the guys up there and just see what they hear over the next several weeks. Um, but I, I don't know. Again, we've got a change in age class of the bulls that are in there kind of running the show i mean it's it's almost you know from a from a forestry standpoint anybody that knows silviculture and and forest management you hear hear people talk about a, a monotypic stand of trees they're all the same age class they all look the same they're all the same height they're all the same diameter they all look the same well it's it's almost like we have that with our bulls it's just like a monotypic stand of bull i mean the number of three-and-a-half and, and four-and-a-half-year-old bulls and maybe a five-and-a-half-year-old bull is just absolutely incredible. Every single bull. And that's what we were talking about with the rifle season. You know, uh, we had a, a mutual friend up there that drew his rifle tag this year after, what, I, don't know, I don't know, 20 years. I don't know how many years he'd been putting in. But there was, like, because all of us had been done, you know, all of us, you know, some of the regular guys up there were done with our clients and, and helping other people. We just all pitched in to help him. And that's what we did every day. We just hit a pot. we just pile, wade through all of these young bulls. You just got to, you go here a bugle and you got to chase it, and you'll run into three or four young bulls, and you hope that at the other end of it is a, you know, 350, 360, 370 plus type bull. Well, goodness gracious. I mean, just dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of these just monitored, two, three, four, five, maybe, maybe five year old bulls. So I think that age class change is going to, I I saw it in Colorado and more people are seeing it on public land in Colorado where we just don't have that diverse age structure where you have those giant bulls, those 10 year old bulls or eight year old bulls that are holding the harem with these two, three, four year old bulls being the satellites. I just didn't see it this year. So I just don't know if we're going to have that real spike explosion of bugles. I think it might be more, of the same, as those cows roll in, as soon as one rolls in, there's a, there's a three-year-old bull or a four-year-old bull that just, boom, I got gotcha, you, and then you just move on, you know?
0: Uh, did you notice that the back points, uh, you know, the force fists and main beams, were they stunted from growth from all your trail cameras and all the observations on the ground that you saw or did they seem to have uh, nice back ends? And my, my question is ultimately getting to, you know, drought conditions. Did, did the bulls look droughty or did the antler configurations uh, not show signs of drought?
1: I think, well, to be honest, I, I don't know. I, don't, I think it might be inconclusive because, you know, checking, you know, again, friends of ours up there run extensive game camera uh, surveys probably the most extensive game. I mean, they probably make state agency look, <laughs> put them to shame as far as what they know about the herd dynamics. But when we went through, you started looking at all the, the different cane camera footage and all the elk that we saw. Yes. I will say that there were a lot of bulls that just did not have significant backs or tops, whatever you want to say that the last half their antlers were uh, unremarkable. However, on the flip side, there were other bulls that had awesome tops. They just had no fronts. So I think we're going to, it's hard sometimes, I think, to tease out what the genetic expression of those antlers want to be to begin with. You know, so, so like, for instance, if you've got a bull that has just weak front and just tremendous tops, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's kind of bath backwards as far as how the growth cycle is. So that just may be how his genetics play out. He just has short fronts, and he wants to throw big tops. But, yeah, I, I mean, I will say that for the vast majority of cows, the bulls that we saw, they just didn't have significant time length. I mean, there were several times where we get in on, on a bull, and, my gosh, I mean, the, your initial sight, you know, he's moving through the timber. I mean, he's super wide, super, I mean, he's got good mass, super wide, it looks like he's long, and then he steps out, and he's literally got 9-inch fourths, 5-inch fifths. He may have 9-inch thirds, and, I mean, there you are. He's got nothing for points. So it'll be interesting to see if those bulls survive all the late-season bull tags, if we have a good season, you know, a good rain moisture, you know, this fall. Now, I mean, we, I'm telling you, that place got hammered with rain these past several days. So if we get some good grass and it maintains over the winter and then we get a good spring and, and early summer in there, it will be very, very interesting for me to see if we have a spike in antler quality. But again, the age classes is, is what it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like 2012 was really the last time we had really, really good antlers. Yeah. Um, it was interesting talking to Monty this spring when he was out shed hunting, um, and for those of you who don't know, Chris and I have a mutual friend, Monty, that lives up there, and he does a ton of shed hunting. And, you know, I remember talking to him in the spring, and he was just saying how dry and dusty, like he'd never seen it that dry. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, it's it's definitely something to think about when, you know, the crown jewel of Arizona, Unit 9, has always been that crown jewel. And, you know, I wasn't up there this year, but I've noticed over the past you know, five or six years, it seems like every year the quality is declining. And, you know, granted, there's still always going to be a couple, you know, four or five top-end bulls. Uh, One of the interesting things is a couple of those big top-end bulls, you know, talking about bulls traveling, um, that big bull lefty that's got all the trash on the left side, he's a straight, clean six on the right. Um, he, He moved last year you know, 18 or 20 miles. He moved this year, 18 or 20 miles, uh, and actually moved out of the unit last year and moved out of the unit this year, as well as that, um, big flare bull, uh, last year was summering the whole time in unit nine and, you know, moved what, 25 miles away to Rudd. And so, you know, I think there is a little bit of, um, I guess, incongruent, uh information as far as yeah in the summer I don't know if incongruent is the right word I might be um, outrunning my coverage there but uh (laughs) there there is a there is a disconnect uh with the bulls that are summering there and a bunch of them you know uh, are park bulls and then a bunch of them leave um but it used to be you know you would go every day and see cookie cutter 350 beautiful six just Beautiful 350 class, 355 class bulls. And over the last four or five years, it just seems like the cookie cutter has all of a sudden become that 325, 330 bull. Yeah. And, you know, I know I will get messages and emails and people saying, oh, there's still giants there and all that. Now, I, I'm not really disagreeing with that, but what I'm saying is the overall quality of what I call cookie cutter. meaning every single day you see one just like this, and that used to be 350, 355, seems like is now 325, 330, you know, and I was talking to another friend yesterday, it's like, sometimes we wish we could just ground check some of these, you know, there's people out there that make statements of, Why'd you shoot that bull? I saw six bulls that were way bigger than that. And sometimes you want to just be able to have the zapper gun and just be like, bam, bam, bam. Okay. Let's go store them <laughs> and see exactly what they were. Yeah. You know, because you know, the reality in my mind is the quality is slipping. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that goes back to the number of bulls harvested on the late hunt. I mean, obviously the archery tags have been the same. Um, you know, the early rifle hunt flip flop from muzzleloader early rifle. And I think they, you know, they definitely kill some good, you know, older age class bulls on those uh, early firearm seasons. But, uh, you know, I, I, and you know, drought, I think plays a huge role uh, in it yeah. too. And, and um, having moisture at the right time. I mean, I think, like you said, with having this moisture that we had, if we could have a, a big snow year and have a big early, you know, early green up and a bunch of moisture kind of, you know, uh, late February, March, early April, kind of get everything going. We probably have another 2012 or have another 2005. Um, and in Arizona, when we get those perfect moisture conditions, and I, I think it's more, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a year and a half, maybe two year process of, of everything lining up correctly. We have a bunch of, you know, those, all of a sudden those 330 bulls are at maximum potential and they're 355, 360 type bulls.
1: Yeah, and you nailed nailed it. I was just going to, that's exactly what I was going to say is that, you know, from year to year, if you've got optimal conditions, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon for a bull to throw on an extra 30 inches from year to year. So, I mean, you have, especially these younger age class where you're going from three to four or four to five that, that's where they they're thrown on on bones so you, we could you absolutely if all the stars align we could absolutely see a really good jump in the quality of antlers but then again here we are we're, we're still talking about that monotypic age class stand so it's going to be interesting to see how that that plays out but you know when i said you know these guys run you know our friends up there run probably the most extensive. Um, game camera survey. Okay, put, and you nailed it. I mean, some of those bulls are going to pick up and move out. We know that they're going to move. And conversely, we know that there's probably some good bulls in adjacent areas that are going to pick up and move into the unit. But, I, you know, I if you just look at it on on the level with what was in there all summer, literally they categorized and, and, and sorted out and looked at and, and saved pictures of, Hundreds upon hundreds of bulls. And when they ran the numbers, 370 bulls and better, 370 and above, represented 0.8% of the population.
0: Now, one question I have about that before you go further is are we talking summer velvet yeah. photos? Or, okay. Yes. So, right total, from, in, total inventory. Probably from inventory. summer velvet, velvet, velvet uh, inventory, right
1: up until the first day of archery, yes, yes. So again, we know that some of those bulls are going to pick up and move out, so that's going to decrease that number. But we also know that there could be some bulls that want to move in, so that they either balance that number or bump it. But regardless, it it wasn't like okay that you know the the truly big bulls are 10% of the population. Okay, I think if, if, if we ran the numbers and it said, well, there's 10% of the Bulls are 370 and above, oh my goodness, people would just fall all over themselves. I mean, that, that would have been epic. But when you're looking at and that's .8, .8, that's crazy. It's just absolutely, you know, again, I don't want to put words in Steve's mouth. I think you, you guys did a phenomenal set of of series with Steve, you know, the podcast with Steve Chappell, I think I would love to hear what Steve, has, I know what he's going to say. I just talked to him, but I think it'd be good for the podcast listeners to, to hear Steve talk about it, because I mean, he did very, very well this year. They got into some really good goals, like he always does. He's, he's awesome. So, I mean, it'd be very interesting to see what, what, or hear what Steve has to say, but it is, it's just, it's just a different unit now, and so I think, you know, if we're, if we're looking at, you know, we're looking ahead, Want to give folks a heads up, you know, people that have been putting in for how many ever years for U to nine. I think, you know, like um, Craig Steele. I mean, you guys had a great couple podcasts with him. That, you know, Craig watches the weather. I I thought I was a weather hound. This guy, goodness gracious, he just needs to go work for NOAA and and do the weather himself. But I mean, this guy just—that's all he studies. And I mean. He had some great maps, and he was pulling together some great imagery these past couple years, and I think people like Craig Steele are going to be extremely valuable. People need to lean on him, because if you're going to put in for Unit 9 next year, brother, you better be looking at that weather and seeing what potential is. Otherwise, you're going to be burning 19, 20 points for a 330
0: bull. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with your comments about Steve and with your comments about Craig. Those guys are... Uh, hopefully going to be both on the podcast here this week, uh recap and what they found. Uh, but I think one thing needs to be pointed out, like what you're saying is you spent all your time in unit nine. What I'm hearing uh, from, from a lot of guys uh, that I've talked to just on the telephone is kind of overall, all over the state, just, just not a really good year. And so, you know you talk about guys with 1920 points or what have you putting them for unit 9 i think they just have to realize and i think you know i've caught a little bit of heat for this and, and it's fine I, I believe it and so i'm going to say what i believe and i believe overall our quality in arizona is declining and well you you not- that's i think it's unit i mean uh it it's all the units i think yeah. uh it it's all the units now Those factors, we talked about some of those factors, but I just think overall, uh, I think on these late hunts, I think we're harvesting too many bulls, uh, and I think we need to back off our late hunt numbers on bulls, and I think that would help. Granted, I think that if we had uh, great, great moisture cycles at the right time, I think we could buck some of that trend, but I still think it's on a downhill slide, and I think until something's done about it, uh, we're going to continue to see it slide, whether it's nine, whether it's 10, whether it's 23, whether it's unit one. Um, you know, I think, I think at some point, uh, us as hunters, we're going to have to talk to our game and fish agencies and let them know what we want. One of the challenges is uh, that there's a lot of hunters that they just want opportunity. They just want the ability to go hunt. And, you know, you've seen it in Colorado where, uh, it, it went from, you know, basically everything over the counter to then limited draw came in for elk. And I mean, people went crazy. There were, you know, death yeah. threats and all sorts of stuff for the people that were making limited draw. And then all of a sudden, four five, six years later, Colorado saw a huge spike in quality of bulls and, and probably, I would argue, quality of experience. And then they tapered it back now. And are, it seems like they're going back the other direction. Um, and I may be speaking a little bit out of turn, but that's just my perception. Um, so it's, it's just interesting. I mean, um, you know, let's face it. We'd all love to chase a nice bull and we'd all like them to bugle and it's just some of those years it's not going to happen and some of those years it is one thing i always run into you know being an outfitter is there's guys that have 17 18 19 20 22 24 points for elk and they're going off of magazine articles from 15 years ago and they have it in their head that you know xyz unit is the greatest unit there is and they see you know out of 50, out a hundred tags, they see one or two bulls that make the magazine cover, yeah. and they think that it's just as good as it's always been. And and I'm just going to you know, be on the record here of saying, and I know I'll catch a little bit of heat for it, but Arizona's elk quality is not what it used to be. Um, well, I'm, I'm not saying. saying that that can't be overturned. I'm not saying that the tide can't be changed, but I'm saying my observation is, the overall quality is not what it used to be. And, and you are not the only person
1: saying that. That's the thing. You you might be the one that's out there on a podcast talking to, you know, how many other hundreds of thousands. I, mean, I don't even know how many listeners you've got now, but yeah, you, you might be the one that's out there publicly saying that in a, in a public forum on this very popular podcast. But I'm telling you right now, I've talked to several people that have been there for years. One of them, you know, one individual who's hunted unit nine since the very first day it was open for the first year is open. I mean, we had a very high quality conversation about it and he literally agrees hundred percent, pretty much down the line with everything that we just said. He just, you know, he's very active with the wildlife commission and watching what's going on and, and that you nailed it. The st- it. And it is what it is. You, you know, we've actually had this conversation before. You've got this, this trend of, you know, trophy hunters versus, Meat hunters and, and this this angst between the two and you know how the you know how does it all balance out etc well apparently uh, the wildlife commission or, or Arizona whatever however you know whatever the whether it's legislative whether it's commission whether whatever the folks that want opportunity have really spoken up and so Arizona seems to have moved in a direction that is more in line with opportunity hunts rather than high-quality hunts. And you just, nary the two shall meet. I mean, if you're going to go in there and provide several hundred, if not, what, two, three hundred people an opportunity to go into a single unit and shoot a bull, for meat, that's fine. But you're just not going to have to maintain the age class it's going to allow you to have the trophy potential with it. I if if the state want, and again, here I am, armchair quarterbacking this. But again, my opinion means nothing. Um,
0: well, you are we, you are a, you know studied and certified wildlife biologist and eco, you know behavior ecologist, so you do know what you're talking about.
1: Uh, I, might I know mean, what they, I'm talking about, but I don't live here, so I my voice yeah. Kind of but I relevant. mean,
0: they, the game and fish pays people good money to get you know, to, 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 to manage. And yeah. here you are, uh, you know, ever bit as qualified as anyone that they have, you know, recommending their biology and and some other different patterns and such.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, my opinion is this, it, when, when you do a late season hunt, um, the, the connotation of a late season hunt is it's a bull tag and I'm there for me. I don't care what the bull looks like. And so, you know, in those, those previous years you know that you know you get through archery season you've got some busted up bulls and then by the time you get through rifle season the, bull, the bulls are busted up and so if you're a archery hunter or if you, if you so let me let me just rephrase if you're an early season hunter most of the time early season hunters are out there for quality they're they're looking at antler quality and they want a quality experience but they also want a quality animal that's what they're out there for well when it comes to late season and then they're all, the bulls are all busted up, that person has a fundamentally different outlook on what they're looking for. They don't, they don't care if they look at a bull and he's 10 years old and he's busted off both main beams and he's got one eye guard on one They don't care. That, he's got antlers, he's a bull, shoot him. Okay, so that bull's dead. And it's just from a meat hunter standpoint. I'd almost say if, if the state, want, if, if they wanted to increase opportunity. I would be curious to know what it would end up looking like if instead of having a high, you know, you have your early season and then a bunch of late people, what if you just extended your early seasons and increased tags? Because I, the, the reason why I say that is I think during the early season, There is a fundamental difference in in the behavior of a mature bull, and I think there's a fundamental difference in the tactics that are required to go after a mature bull to where if someone goes in there and they just want a meat hunt, they're going to go in that unit, and the first two-and-a-half-year-old three-by-three or four-by-four they see, it's a -a two-and-a-half-year-old bull. Boom, it's dead. They've got their meat bull. But yeah, we've preserved some of the older age class animals because they did not spend the time, the skill set or the tactics or whatever you want to say. They did not execute the, the, the necessary uh, actions to go after that upper age class animal. So I, I'm wondering if there wouldn't be a way that you could kind of balance opportunity with trophy by just changing when they provide those opportunities, because I think then you might actually be able to harvest a more random sample set of bulls, which then would, generally, if you're talking about random statistically, hopefully, what you end up with is a maintenance of your diverse age class. Does that make any sense, or did I just ramble?
0: Yeah, no, I I think I understand what you're saying. The one thing I would tell you is because Arizona tags and even late season tags are getting so hard to draw, I think the challenge is the late hunters become trophy hunters as well and are trying to shoot that older age class. Oh, I got you. I think you don't, you know, they don't wait seven years to just go shoot a a four by five and dump it for meat. If they would, they would be going, going for a cow. So I, I think the dynamic is is, I think there should be two or three units in Arizona that they limit the number of late bull tags, keep the early tags the same, and you know, cut the late tags in half and have maybe one or two units, a couple of just crown jewel, you know, 380, 390, 400 inch potential, um, I think it'd be awesome. And um, then have some other units, maybe have some other mid-tier units that are even more opportunity. So then, you know, there's a little bit for both, but I mean we could argue and we could talk to her blue in the face about (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's easy for us to tell them what they should do. But all I can tell you is the quality overall statewide is declining. And there's a bunch yeah. of factors, I think, that play into that. But I think the o- overall uh, scenario is we're shooting too many bulls. And, well, and it's it, age class. Our yeah. bulls are not getting to to live old enough. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. pretty simple in my mind.
1: Yeah, and, and you nailed it when you said I, I think this really is, it needs to rest squarely on the shoulders of, of the potential hunter. If you're going to apply and you're going to burn those tags, you need to understand what you're getting into. Now, I understand, granted, there are some outfitters out there that are going to continue to sell the legend of Unit 9. Uh, they're, they're going to still, oh, yeah, we can get you a good bull. We'll get you a big bull. There's some big bulls out there. And then they send all their pr- prospective clients to one or two pictures of a giant, you know, who knows where they got the picture of in the park wherever. And they're going to they're going to still try to bill Unit 9 as this premier crown, like you said crown jewel. And so they they're, they're going to dupe some people, you know, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. But I think it's really on it, it's on the shoulders of the hunter to really spend the time to, you know, what's the weather doing? What's the rain doing? What how has it been and, and just really start looking at the pictures, you know, start going through all the outfitters and taking a look at their pictures and seeing what size bulls they really truly are taking. Because I heard, I've, I heard it last year and I heard it this year and it just kind of drives me absolutely nuts. They draw the tag. And then at the end of the season, they're like, well, I'm, I'm pretty darn disappointed. This, this isn't what, this isn't what I, you know, I, I put in for unit nine and this isn't what I was expecting or this is, this isn't what, you know, the type of hunt that I was looking forward to. well, okay you know I, obviously none of us can do anything about the weather you you put your application in early before all the antler growth has even really kicked in so that's kind of a crapshoot, you just gamble we can't do anything about the weather but when you know ahead of time that the previous years haven't been that great and you continue to put in in, in a hoax, well you, you got to understand that like you said uh, some of the quality is declining yes some of it has to do with the weather we can't control that unfortunately other parts of it just happen to do with how Arizona's managing their unit and the number of tags in there so if you look at your you in the late winter you're looking at the the draw you're like oh they're only going to offer you know 100 tags in there well yeah for your season how many tags did they offer for the late season that's what you need to start paying attention to
0: yeah for sure um you know, I got to see firsthand up uh, in Utah on the Beaver unit, and I don't know the numbers specifically, but the the archery tags, there was only seven tags, uh, one non-resident, six resident. I believe there was only like eight early rifle tags. I believe there's only like six muzzleloader tags. And I want to say there's like, I'm just just wild guess. I think there's like 10 or 12 late season tags, and maybe it's even less than that oh in a God. unit. In a unit, Chris. That's um, Unit Nine, and the Beaver. The, the Beaver seemed bigger to me, and really? so I saw super high quality. You know, lots of three forty to three seventy bulls. Lots of them. Lot more. Uh, you know, solid bulls than any public land hunt I've ever been on, including any unit in Arizona. And so, I think I. You know although they shoot spikes and they shoot cows during the archery season, it's over the counter. Um, I saw lots of solid 350, 360, 370 bulls. And I think that's just from age class. I think that's from not, you know, wiping out the, you know, the herd. And while every year elk season, I'm critical of the Arizona game and fish. I'd like to say, I do think Arizona does, you know is is one of the best states for managing their wildlife so i don't want to be a total debbie downer but it's you know i'm just saying what i've been witnessing and i'm witnessing an overall decline the other thing i'd like to point out and i've said it before is and i talk to hunters all the time just because you've waited 18 or 20 years for whatever tag it is whether it's you know bighorn sheep you know mule deer elk whatever it may be That does not mean that you're going to get a trophy animal. That does not mean that you deserve a trophy animal. All it means is you add enough points to draw that tag. That's right. So I think, you know, you hear people say, well, I had 20 points. I don't want to waste it on this unit. I don't want to waste it. I say, okay, in my mind, what are the hunt dates? What is the moon doing? Yeah. You know. Uh, what is the trend of the unit and way you know what are your trophy expectations what are you expecting out of the hunt everybody wants a 400 inch bull but how many are there in the unit oh there's only two maybe in the whole unit yeah and and maybe one of them's gonna leave and go 25 miles away and be gone well we need to ramp down our expectations and get a little bit more realistic in okay there's a lot of 330 to 340 bulls. Anything over 350, from what I'm hearing you say in unit nine is a is a trophy. And if we took you know the hundred bull tags, I wonder how many bulls got harvested that were gross and a legitimate you know real score over 350. I'm betting. Yeah. I'm yeah. betting on a year like this, maybe six or seven. Yeah. Hey, top, maybe, top, maybe Yeah. A, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I I'll, mean, I'll agree with that. Tops. You know, so I mean, that's that's less than 10 percent, you know, of bulls just being over 350. So I think hunters, um, you know, going into next application season, I think you just got to weigh your overall um, expectations. And then I think you've got to weigh in your capabilities. Are you in shape? Yes. Are, Are you a crack shot? Are you in shape? you know, do you have t- targeted strategies from the row hunting resource? I mean, do you, do you have a plan? Uh, yeah. have you hired, you know, are you going guided or are you going unguided? Um, you know, uh, are you taking this hunt seriously enough to kill a three seventy plus bull? Well, or, and,
1: and yeah, it, it, look, I don't mean to interrupt, but I mean, that's, that's a solid point. And I'm going to, I, I want to talk about something here in a second, but I mean, that's a solid point. Do you have a plan? Um, I, I I had experience with one guy this year that, you know, he. by the time they ended the hunt, the archery hunt, you know, his, his attitude was, why do I need to hire, hire a guide? We can do this ourselves. We can do this DIY and, and have just as much success, blah, 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 because I can get a shooter. Well, okay, the quality of shooter that the guy was talking about is a 320, 330, maybe a 340 bull. Well, yeah, if if, if that's all you want, if, that's the, if that is the bull that you want, oh, my gosh, goodness, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm an outfitter. You're an outfitter. okay. Well, I say I'm an outfitter. I, I guided this year. This is my first year doing it officially, you know, down here with a client. So you know, if, if all you want is, is a quality experience, you just want a 320, 330, 40 bowl, I, you know what? I'm sorry. I don't know if you need to hire anybody. Just come out and have a good time. If, if you want something of that upper echelon, if you want that, you know, the, the top 1% of bowls that are in there or even top 5%, you need a plan and you need assistance, and you need help, and you need to, hunt. that's a complete different mindset. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's some guys that are saying, I drew 20, I, you know, I've waited 20 years, I drew the tag, I should be able to just hire anybody, and we'll just go out and we'll go kill one. Uh, well, no, that doesn't happen.
0: And, and I think, too, I think, um, you know, when you're looking at using your points, you have to say, what kind of hunt do I want? There is, we go. Is, is, is the quality of bull at the end of the hunt all that I care about. And is that the, the ultimate measure of success? And if it is, there's certain outfitters that, you know, that you may choose. If there's, uh, you say, you know, I want to just have a great time. I want to have a calling. I want to have a bugling hunt. I yep. want to have bulls coming in. I want to have active strategies for, you know, making plays and, and learning how to elk hunt. Then there's outfitters for that. Um, yes. so, and, and what's hard is picking an outfitter where you can have a mixture of both. Do you want to sit water or are you the guy that says, I don't want to sit water? I don't care what's going on. I'm not sitting water. I want to run and gun. So, yep. you know, I think as hunters, I think you have to do the research and you have to say, ultimately, what do I want out of waiting 20 years? You know, is it all about the size of bull? Or is it, I'll give a little bit on size of bull if I don't have to sit water. Or I'll give a little bit of size of bull if I can run and gun hunt the whole time. Or I want to sit water and that's how I want to do my hunt. You know, there's yep. there's certainly outfitters that are more, you know, I want a glassing hunt. I want to glass bulls and spot and stock. I want to put an earbud in my, and I want the outfitter to sit up on a knob and direct me and get me in as many opportunities. I mean... So there's a lot to it and there's way more than just, you know, a picture of a bull and what did it look like and, and how did the hunt go?
1: Well, you know, and that, uh, and, 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 well, and forgive me, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just, I wanted a hammer on that because that, that is the thing. And again, I, you know, talking to you know, one of the guys up there this year, I mean, just a phenomenal out, phenomenal individual, phenomenal out for the guys He's a legend up there, and, and we we sat, we talked, and uh, you know, that's one thing that he and I noticed is just, okay, we've this 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 first part of this discussion, we've really been hammering the the, the, the big bulls, the trophy bulls, the guys that want the trophy, 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 trophy. Okay, so I, probably a lot of you're just DIYers, are like, I, who gives a crap? You know, I don't care about trophy hunting. All right, well then let's segue. Let's let's flip this off and say, okay, like you just said, okay, what opportunity do you want? Because there are those other guys that are saying, you know what, I don't care about how big of a bowl I get. I just want an absolute awesome experience because if you put in for 20 years, you're like, okay, it, depending on the mindset, you might be putting in 20 years saying, you know what, when I show up, I just want to be in bulls every day. I just want to have bugling like I've never heard bugling before. I just want to have that experience with where somebody calls in a bull, or me, or somebody else, or an outfitter, or whatever, guy, where that bull is 10 yards and just screaming my ears off. That is what I want. I'll tell you, as much of a – I am a, I will – Self-identify as quote unquote a trophy hunter. I, I look at age class, not necessarily the antler quality. you know me? I, you know some of the bulls that I've called in down there, they're 10 year old bulls and they don't score for you know anything because they've got some weird club or hook or you know just like twizzler or Captain Hook or whatever you know they're 10, 12 year old bulls, but they don't score. Man, I would put I would fill my tag in a second because it's a 10 year old bull. But so I, I'm more of a trophy quote unquote hunter. Um, but I'm telling you, it's anymore, it's getting more and more difficult for me to find enjoyment in just going after score. Because I think some people lose perspective on what we're actually doing out there. And what we should be doing out there. And that's having a good time. You know, there are some people that get caught up on score and they just absolutely get teed off of the fact that, well, there's just no big bulls out here and I didn't get any big bulls and I didn't see any good big bulls, so I'm disappointed. Well, okay, if if score is all that she's focused on, then then everything that we just talked about, I think really needs to be in the forefront of your mind. Weather, numbers, the whole nine yards. But Okay, let's talk to the guy now that says, "I just want a quality experience." If that's the case, I think Unit Nine is going to be awesome still. Because yes, I think the drought and the dry weather really impeded a lot of the behavior and a lot of the activity that people saw. But that is that that fluctuates year to year. That will change. And quite honestly, I think if we get one of these years where we have good moisture and the cows cycle in the way they normally cycle, and all of a sudden we have this glut of, of cows coming into cycle, do you have a, a, a monotypic stand of H-class of bulls in that unit? Oh, my goodness, they are going to be cranking because it's just going to be nonstop competition of, of, of bulls trying to find their own particular cow. So I think for those guys that are interested in just a quality hunt, a fun hunt, a bugling hunt, a a calling hunt, that type of deal, I think if the weather hits it right, I think it'll be a phenomenal, phenomenal unit.
0: Yeah, you know, Chris, um, I've got a couple things to add here. Um, Everyone wants to know how my beaver hunt went, and so I've got kind of firsthand. So I go into the beaver hunt in Utah. I drew the only non-resident tag in beaver I had 16 bonus points. It was 172 non-residents that applied for the one tag. Because there's only one tag, it goes completely random. I draw the tag. Uh, my buddy Tony lives up there and knows the unit really well. And he tells me, you're not going to believe the quality of bulls up here. And, you know, I, at, at the time, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then,
1: you know, <laughs> as
0: I started seeing trail camera photos. And I, I quickly realized that, yes, it was, it was a very high quality as far as trophy potential uh, that I had. And so as the summer went on, I got more and more excited. And as I started seeing some of the different trail camera photos, I quickly realized that this wasn't just going to be a fun elk hunt. And so I kind of transitioned from, oh, this is way better than what I was thinking. Uh, you know, to I, I went from I'm just gonna go chase bugles and have a great hunt and just uh, you know, have the best elk hunt I've ever had to. There's a couple of bulls here that I really need to get serious and you know I really have a chance to kill these elk. And a uh, one bull in particular I kind of set my sights on, and you know. Tony and his brother and his dad would go out every morning and every evening and they would come back with phone scope video of a new 350 360 370 and and maybe even on you know 375 380s types of bulls every single day and sometimes all three of them had bulls that they had found that were of that quality. That's but there great. were there were a couple bulls in particular that were super big and I've shot two bulls over 400. I've shot three bulls over or over 390. So I knew that this was an opportunity that I could notch my tag on another giant. And so very early on after arriving there, I realized that, you know, this is not an opportunity that comes by very often. And I had a chance to shoot a giant. And so I focused in and, and specifically hunted a specific area targeting a bull and looking back not having filled my tag having two opportunities with that bull one at five yards and one at ten yards and and not being able to fire a shot uh, is so disheartening but on the other hand i had an unbelievable hunt because a step here a step there you know a second here a second there I would have an absolute giant bull on the ground, and you know the, the old saying, if my ba- if my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. You know, <laughs> I, you know, some of that plays into it, and yeah, people will say, oh well, yeah, a step here, a step there. Well, literally, full draw two situations, a step here, a you know six inches of movement here, on and on the other situation, you know, a six or eight inches of movement there. I've got a, you know, five or a 10 yard shot at, you know, one of the biggest bulls I've, you know, a giant and, or I could have said, you know what, I think these two bulls, you know, they're going to be hard to kill and very tough. I want to go the other route and I want to just go into a bugling frenzy. I want to dive in with the elk and mix it up with them and have the greatest calling and bugling hunt and just have a have a grand old time i didn't even actively like go in the field calling and doing my thing but a couple times i was either glassing or or listening or just trying to hear hear the specific bull bugle and go after that bull so you know I bring all this up in in the fact that everybody has to choose what they want to do. Now, when I draw, I have 18 or 19 points in Colorado, and the biggest bull in some of those units might be 330, 340. I'm going to take a different complete approach on that hunt, and I'm going to say every single day of the hunt, I am not going to glass. I'm just going to go dive in with the elk and make it a calling hunt. Yeah, that's have fun. Because – Okay, so what? I kill the biggest bull in the unit, and he's 350. And yeah, that's a big bull for that unit. I would rather go into that hunt and just go, you know, call in f- five points after one after another, and you know, hunt for 20, 25 days, and finally shoot one, you know, at the last day. That's a you know, five by six, and say it's the you know greatest bugling and calling hunt that I've had. Where I contrast that and compare that with the the beaver hunt that I just had. I could have done that on the beaver and had, you know, unbelievable calling and call ins and experiences, but I chose to go after, you know, a, a target bull, and I didn't get him killed. So people ask me, you know, how was your hunt? And I say it was one of the greatest elk hunts I've ever been on, and there were days when I didn't even hear or see an elk. But I think you, you have to kind of weigh in on. Where are you at as a hunter? What are you looking for? And, you know, what are your objectives? And and so, you know, I think people can transition, but I think when they're putting in for Arizona, they need to figure out what is it that they want. Do they want to focus on one stinking bull and potentially go the whole hunt and only see the bull twice?
1: Yeah. Or do they well, want
0: and- to just come and enjoy themselves? And, you know, some, some people like me enjoy the... the, the you know, trying to kill that specific bull and then when you don't get it done, instead of saying it was a horrible hunt, it was one of the greatest hunts I've had.
1: Yeah. I and mean, he if I use my hunter for this year as an example, I mean he was, you know, when we talked all three, you know, before season it was I want three seven year better. I, I want three seven year better that I and he legitimately he's kind of I mean, on a different scale, he's similar to you. He's killed some really good bulls. And on public land and on private land, but he did DIY stuff. I mean, he's killed some really good bulls. So he figured, you know what? He drew this tag this year on the random draw. So he wouldn't even really, quote unquote, supposed to draw this tag this year. It was kind of a random deal. He was like, oh my gosh. He goes, you know, this is an opportunity for me to kill a giant. And so that's what he wanted to do. So again, that's what I focused on, you know, And, and. given the fact that we're dealing with 0.8% or I, I, at that time I thought it was 0.5, but it doesn't matter. I said, you know, we're dealing with a handful of bulls and those handful of bulls, the the ones that are going to be here, the ones that live here, that are not going to move out of the unit, not going to walk away or whatever. The ones that live here, they live in a couple certain spots. And if you want that size of bull, there's going to be a certain type of hunt that is just, we're going to grind it out. And so, you know, one of those tactics this year, everything, you know, early, the only good bulls that were being killed were being killed on water because that water was the limiting factor. No one was bugling. No one was talking. They were just coming into water. And so literally when by just by fluke accident, I mean, all of a sudden one of the best water holes, mud holes, tanks opened up. There, the hunters that had hunted in the killed, I don't know, 330, 320, 330 bull on it, and they went home. Well, all of a sudden, for a full day, no one's hunting this just sweet honey hole of a tank that literally one of the big bulls, well, more than one of the big bulls. There were a couple of big bulls that were hunting; they were living around there. It, it's that they're, they're going to be there. So I, I grab my ground blind, threw that ground blind in there, and I told Honor, I said, "We're we're sitting this water hole, you know." And of course, you know, first he's like, "I don't want to sit a water hole." You know, that's just not the type of hunt that he wanted. And so after we kind of talked, I said, you know, here's the deal. We, show, we want to run and chase bugling bulls. Well, they're not bugling, number one. Number two, you want a certain class of bull. Well, this is the tactic that we need at this moment to try to maximize that opportunity. So we sat water. Well, again, he, he is not somebody that wants to sit water. He goes stir-crazy a blind, but he's, He gutted it out because he knew that that was what needed to happen. Now, the other thing, too, is because this was such a prime location, I mean, my gosh, he had, I don't know how many, 320, 330 bulls coming in, broad daylight, you know, 20 yards from him flailing around in the water, carrying on bugling. just, I mean, it was just, it was just a nonstop action activity center to where it was fun for him to enjoy, but by the same token, again, you, we're talking of tactics. We're talking about what you want, what type of hunt you want. Well, if you are the type of guy that says, "I, you know, inches are all I care about, well, then you have to understand that that very well may entail tactics that are not fun. You know, I, I'll be the first to admit, you and I talk about it. I do not like sitting behind glass. I just don't. You are Unbelievable at what you can do behind a set of sarovskis up on uh, on top of some of these knobs and these bluffs and stuff I mean you can sit up there for days on end and pick that thing apart eight weeks from Sunday and identify every single bullet out there it drives me absolutely nuts I would <laughs> rather be in the pines running and just just going and, and, and weaselling them out you know but again you have you, if you all you care about is inches and you're going to have to suck it up and, and play the tactic that is going to give you the best opportunity for those interests. It may not be a fun hunt, but it may be the most productive for that goal. But if you want to have a fun hunt, my gosh, the opportunities are out there. It's just what is your priority, and and regardless of what's your priority, you've got to remember it's supposed to be fun. Do you know what I mean? So right. I think you, I think Unit Nine has the, the the definite potential to be a fun unit. I just don't know if it's going to be one of those numbers units uh, in the future or for, for very much longer. We'll, we'll see. I don't know.
0: Let's take another quick break here. Phonescope is a company that makes custom molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. It is simple to text photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. Phonescope stands behind their product with a hundred percent money back guarantee, get yours now by using the J Scott sixteen promo code and receive ten percent discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope. That's p h o n e s k o p e dot com or on Instagram at PhoneScope. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any products. Okay, you're headed uh, east, headed back to Kansas. Um, what's in your near future? What do you have going on? Looking forward to at home.
1: Well, like I say, no rest for the wicked. Um, literally, I am rolling up north. I've got to meet my wife in Colorado, drop off uh, computer and stuff to her. She's in a project, and literally tomorrow morning, I I'll probably just stay the night there tonight, just because it's gonna be a long haul, but. I, as soon as I roll into Colorado, it is literally dump the camper, unload, laundry, recharge camera batteries, and and just literally I am diving headfirst, getting ready for uh, whitetail. We've got some hunters coming in at the end of October into beginning of November, and this year, unfortunately, we had a pretty catastrophic flood that went through and. He I, my guess, significantly altered uh, one of our properties, at least the river bottom portion of our property. So It happened, I was already in Colorado, so I, I haven't seen, I'm, I'm literally going back home to discover just how bad the carnage is from, from this historic flood. And then on another property... It's going to be um, trying to just take inventory of what we have because it's going to be interesting because of crop prices and commodity prices and all sorts of other details. I don't know what the landowner is going to be planting as far as fall or if he's going to be planting in winter wheat um, and what the harvest looks like. So I'm going to be getting out there to an inventory on that, trying to help the harvest if I can because I'd really like if, if they're not going to plant the fields in winter wheat, where I am, winter wheat is king. You know, winter wheat grows up, you know, four to five inches or so in the, you know, three to five inches in the fall, stays really green, high protein, high palatability all the way in through winter. So all the deer pile onto it, uh, when the weather's nice. And then in the spring, that is our, that's the place where all the turkeys congregate. So that, that makes our turkey season really, really successful. Well, he may or may, our landowners may or may not be planting much winter wheat this fall. Um, so if they don't, I'm going to be really trying to figure out if we could get cover strips, just some food plot, essentially. So it's going to it's gonna be interesting. It's just going to be diving headfirst into getting into whitetail season, and it, it might be a, a whirlwind month just to try to get these guys